PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hello, this is Becky Crake, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the August issue. The first paper is entitled Effectiveness of Exercise for Managing Osteoporosis in Women Postmenopause. The authors are Palombero and Black from Widener University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and co-authors are Rochelle Bookbinder and Diane Jetty, two of our editorial board members. In this case, the authors were able to find 43 randomized control trials with more than 4,000 women postmenopausal who ranged in age from 45 to 70. What was really disappointing is the number of studies that had to be excluded because of insufficient description of the exercise. So I think one of the messages that I hope this whole issue presents to researchers who are investigating interventions is to be really careful in describing the type of intervention, the intensity, the duration, the frequency of the intervention, and what each of the aspects of the intervention are. The next article is entitled Effect Therapeutic Exercise on Pain and Disability in the Management of Chronic Nonspecific Neck Pain. This is a systematic review and a meta-analysis of randomized control trials. The authors are a series of individuals led by Lucia Bertozzi of the University of Bologna in Bologna, Italy. What was striking to me in looking at the study is the authors did a lovely job listing the articles, the types of intervention, the frequency, and the duration in Table 1. So I encourage you to look at Table 1. But there was not dose of exercise and its relationship to a change in pain or disability. And again, what I would encourage investigators to do when they're providing descriptions of their intervention is to be really specific in the type of intervention that's being provided so that I could pick it up and do the same exact exercise for the same number of repetitions, the same duration. I think if we don't carefully document what intervention is, we're really not going to be able to figure out which active ingredients affect change. The next article entitled Longitudinal Change in Physical Activity and Its Correlates in Relapsing, Remitting Multiple Sclerosis is authored by Robert Maltel and his colleagues from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I really, really think this is an excellent study. It's a descriptive study talking about what happens over a two and a half year period of time to 269 individuals with a diagnosis of relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. For a more in-depth description of this paper, please listen to the podcast on this topic. I really thank the authors for submitting this article to our journal. The next article is entitled Acute Cartilage Loading Responses After an In Vivo Squatting Exercise in People with Doubtful to Mild Knee Osteoarthritis. This is a case control study, and it's been conducted by Van Ginkel and Vitro from Ghent University in Belgium. 
this is an interesting study because what the authors did was ask 18 people with signs of doubtful to mild medial tibiofemoral osteoarthritis compared to 18 persons who were middle-aged and healthy to perform 30 repetition squatting exercises. The biggest difference between the two groups was how long it took the cartilage to recover following the 30 squat exercises. I think the implications of this work, although the work is preliminary, are very helpful to the clinician. The next article is entitled Incidents and Factors Associated with Falls in Independent Ambulatory Individuals with Spinal Cord Injury, a six-month prospective study. The authors are Fan Thi and colleagues from Konkan University in Konkan, Thailand. This study is interested in examining individuals who have been discharged from hospitals and are living independently and recording the incidence of falls and the factors associated with falls. The results are very interesting and I think, at least for me, were counterintuitive. Those who fell more often had an educational level of high school or greater had an Asia or American Spinal Cord Injury Association impairment scale of C and a fear of falling, whereas those who did not fall had a lower education, an Asia classification D, and no fear of falling. And the authors predicted four times greater chance of falling for those that I just described. So fear of falling is something that perhaps physical therapists can address The next article is entitled Home-Based Versus In-Hospital Cardiac Rehabilitation After Cardiac Surgery. This is a non-randomized control study, and the authors are a series of physicians and scientists who come from the Cardiac Rehabilitation Department at a hospital in Brescia, Italy. The authors are really interested in investigating the use of telemedicine in this study. I encourage you to look at this article because it really does help us think about the future and what we can do with such tools as video conferencing, phone calls. The patients were contacted by a video conference by both physical therapist and a nurse. So what the authors concluded is that home-based supervised exercise was just as effective as inpatient rehabilitation. The next paper is entitled Exercise Intensity Levels in Children with Cerebral Palsy While Playing with an Active Video Game Console. And the authors are Robert et al. at the University of Quebec at Montreal in Quebec, Canada. I really enjoyed this article, and I have to tell you that I wasn't expecting to. The authors have done an excellent job providing a rationale for selecting particular games that I found very, very thoughtful. Now, these are with a Wii game, so please look at the article for the details of the exercises if you're not familiar with video games. The bottom line for this study is that both children with and without cerebral palsy were successful in using the video game to get to an intensity greater than 40% of heart rate reserve. And in fact, there was no difference between the children with and without cerebral palsy in performing the exercise. 
The next article comes from the dental school at the State University of Campinas in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The authors were interested in determining whether persons with fibromyalgia that included the facial muscles ended up with temporal mandibular disease. The suggestion is that there was a different pattern of muscle activation observed in persons with fibromyalgia compared to those with temporal mandibular disease. The authors would like to conclude that there's a sensory motor system failure in persons with fibromyalgia that leads to inhibition of muscle contraction with pain and may set the persons up for temporal mandibular disease. So I really thought this was an interesting contribution to our journal, and I thank the authors. The next paper is entitled Psychometric Properties of the Mini Balance Evaluation Systems Test, often called the Mini-Best Test, in Community-Dwelling Individuals with Chronic Stroke by Tsang et al. from Hong Kong Polytechnic University, The authors concluded that the mini-best test is reliable and that the minimal detectable change in persons with chronic stroke was three points, but they found that the Berg balance test was significantly better at identifying fallers with a positive likelihood ratio of 2.6 compared to the mini-best test with a positive likelihood ratio of 1.8. So while this study contributes to the growing body of evidence that the mini-best test is very good in examining balance in persons with a variety of diagnoses, at least in the chronic stroke population, it appears that the Berg balance test is better in identifying fallers. The next paper is entitled Psychometric Properties and Practicability of the Self-Report Urinary Incontinence Questionnaire in patients with pelvic floor dysfunction seeking outpatient rehabilitation. Data were collected from 91 clinical sites in 24 states. 1,628 patients participated in the study. People who have pelvic floor dysfunction commonly have urinary urgency, frequency, bowel constipation, pelvic pain, and sexual dysfunction. This particular test, called the UIQ, looked specifically at urinary function. And what the authors concluded was that the questions that they identified had sound psychometric properties. So this is the beginning. The authors are interested in developing a computer adaptive test that is broader in scope, including other symptoms associated with pelvic floor disease, but at least it looks as though the urinary component has been developed. The final paper in the August issue is a case report that includes eight patients. And the case report is entitled Cognitive Behavioral-Based Physical Therapy to Improve Surgical Spine Outcomes, a case series. The first author is Kristen Archer from Vanderbilt University. This article talks about behavioral self-management, problem-solving, and cognitive restructuring. So this kind of therapy is probably used implicitly by many master clinicians, but the recognition of these components of intervention as active ingredients, I think, is really important. So I hope you find this article of interest. In closing, August is an issue of exercise and self-efficacy, and I encourage you to enjoy this issue as much as I did. Thanks for listening. 
If you have a question for Dr. Craik, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CraikCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.